Hello, welcome to Message, Media, and Movement. I'm your host, Eric Morse. Message, Media, and Movement is a podcast about the business of marketing, from identifying to persuading to mobilizing large groups of people. And the biggest commodity in that mix is data. So I wanted to do this special episode about data because it's such a huge topic for all of us right now. From the GDPR in the EU, rewriting the rules of how we marketers do our jobs, to Facebook and Cambridge Analytica redefining the geopolitical landscape. So this week, I wanted to bring together two senior people who are innovators in the field of data, Jason Denny and Katerina Kopp. Katerina Kopp holds a PhD an MA in Communications and Public Policy from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. She is Deputy Director and Director for Policy at the Center for Digital Democracy. At CDD, she leads multiple initiatives to explore how big data practices and technologies, particularly with regard to privacy, adversely affect individuals, groups, and society. She's focused on how public policy solutions, grassroots efforts, and constituency building can be deployed to mitigate those risks. Dr. Kopp served as a key policy advocate during the passage and implementation of COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And in addition to her work with the Aspen Institute, the Benton Foundation, and the Health Privacy Project, Dr. Kopp served as vice president at American Express, leading its global privacy risk management program. Most recently, she was the director of the Privacy and Data Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Jason Denny got his start in streaming digital media at Real Networks, the pioneers in streaming media and in broadcast of audio and video events over the Internet. Jason developed the Real Jukebox, which was a predecessor to iTunes, and Rhapsody, which was a predecessor to Spotify. At Microsoft, Jason moved into online advertising, where he oversaw a technical advertising team supporting search, display, and APIs, and helped develop AdCenter, the bidding platform that Bing uses for its paid search results. Jason has been the director of ad operations at Collective Inc., the leader in data-driven multi-screen advertising, and is currently senior vice president at AdTheorent, an industry leader in predictive audience targeting. You guys, I literally cannot imagine two people better suited to get together to talk about the promise of data, the limits of data, and the danger of data and to begin to envision a responsible and effective way of engagement without encroachment. We had an awesome conversation. It was all I could do to keep it short because uh, there was so much to talk about and we really, I think the three of us really enjoyed it and I think you're gonna enjoy it too. So let's get right to it. 
Jason Denny, and Katarina Kopp. can't apply for a job without using the word data-driven. If you do, you probably <laughs> won't get the job. Um, so, so there's a big, there's a big push in the marketing world, a world that um, not too long ago was considered to be really creative-driven is now really kind of quant-driven and data-driven and all that stuff. Um, and that enables a lot of exciting innovations as far as marketing is concerned. But it also uh, can can touch some third rails, I think, in terms of privacy and all that stuff. So I thought it would be really exciting and fun, at least for me, to have the two of you um, get together and kind of kind of talk a little bit about that. Dr. Kopp, let's start on this note. Do you see a positive use for data? So, yeah, there's uh, definitely there's always whatever you do, there's always a positive and a negative use of it. So um, in terms of brand and positive use it might get a little bit more complicated, but I definitely see there's a lot of um, applications of data that I would call in the public interest. There's lots of examples in the health space or, you know, in public health, mm -hmm. for example, Um where data can be extremely helpful. I think where we are running into problems these days is that the the real, in my view, the real pursuit of the data uses is really only to advance efficiency. And so efficiency is to target people, to get them to buy things, to convince them of an idea. Um, and we have sort of lost sight of other values that we have. And that's I think it's where it gets complicated. So, um, you know, who is who's benefiting and who's losing from it? So this question of equity and equal opportunity, um, that's really at, at a very high level. But that's sort of where I come from, that we've sort of we're not really balancing the um, the values and the outcomes uh, properly anymore. Hmm. So, Jason, then on your side, um, do you feel like there are limits of data, I, I as I understand it, um, a good bit of the work that you and the company you're working with right now does um, is combining different data sets. Is that right? To sort of build a picture of a of a consumer. It's funny to think that we're now in a world in which we are um, in arms about data usage, um, but this isn't new. Eric, when you and I worked at uh, Real Networks together, I remember clearly the day we had protesters out front of our office because they found out, not that we were being sneaky, but they found out uh, that the real player enabled cookies by default. Uh, I don't know if you remember those days. I don't. It's very Seattle, though. It is very Seattle. We had, we had reporters from the Times in front of you know employees saying, "How are you? why are you tracking data? And that was my very first look at sort of consumers' reactions to tracking data. And I think uh, in the ad world, or in, I should say in the media world, uh, there, you know, unless people were paying full price for media, uh, there is a relationship between consumer and advertising and um, sort of uh, to what we just said, it's like there's a cost, there's a cost associated with that data. 
And we're now at that point where, um, and, and I'm surprised people are surprised um, that, you know, it's coming out that more data is being used because we're, we're, we're offering that, that usage. But so when it comes down to sort of my POV, I don't care about individuals. I don't care about a specific, um, a specific person's address or email address. And when people do come to us and say, I have this email list that we want to give to you to target, we literally say, no, we'd like you to use a third party. We don't want anything to do with PII. We want to stay completely clear. All we want to do is fill all we want to do is feed our our data algorithms to get the right message to the right person. And you, you could go down a slippery slope to say if there's something nefarious about that, that getting the right data to the right person. But for full transparency, I, I really don't care about any any personal information. I care about if somebody gets... If somebody gets a message, a, whether it's an ad, uh, uh, ad tied to the right content or user experience, nobody's up in arms. But I do think we need to empower ourselves not to not not to share information or not be so liberal with what consent we have with giving large data companies, which, quite frankly, is every internet site you go to or every app you you're on or every mobile app you're on. Yeah. Um, just yeah. to jump in on that, I mean, I, I completely agree, even though I'm a privacy expert and privacy people focus on traditionally on personally identifiable information or what you call PII. Um, but really, I completely agree. It's not that relevant that I know that you are Jason or that you're Eric. It really is only that I whether or not. Um, I can treat you and select you in a, in a certain way. And that's really what matters. And I think that's where um, regulators hopefully move towards that they understand that. And that actually an, another aspect, what I care about a lot is how groups are being treated. It's really right. not that relevant anymore, whether the individual is you know discriminated against. But what we as a society need to think about is how are certain groups consistently perhaps getting the short end of the treatment and what does that do to you know increasing inequality over time for example so but i completely agree the focus only on um personal identifiable information has been historically what uh regulators have th thought about but it's really what we need to think about is the use of the data and what that does is that beneficial is that is that good does it what are the trade-offs um and and that's what we really need to have a conversation about I wanted and to. Eric, oh, go, go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say um, your timing is impeccable when we talk about this, and it's not just the recent exposure for uh, Facebook and Cambridge Analytics, but the GDPR launches May 25th, which is the General Data Protection Regula Regulation proposal, which literally says you you cannot track data, and if you are, you have to expose, you have to let that user know. And that user needs to opt out, which I do believe we're we're moving as 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 a world that way. But it's starting out of the EU, which is a which is a great first step. For yeah, I mean the 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 GDPR, the the law that regulates that space in Europe, really does a, a lot more. But you know, it one of the things that in addition to what I just talked about in terms of the use, just even limiting the collection and really um, advancing rights to consumers. Um, I think is central here in the US, 
really consumers don't have any privacy rights. So making that the baseline for 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 everybody to understand that individuals have um, baseline privacy rights, and then thinking about what are the obligations of companies when they engage with consumers. You mentioned the fact that data can be used to increase inequality. Um, and I think that a lot of people who think about collecting data, um, frankly, think about it in kind of the opposite way, that data can be democratic. Can you talk a little bit more about how data can increase inequality? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wide, um, a, a really broad subject, but couple of thoughts on this. So if there's people who, you know, who started studying this and talk about, um, you know, biases that we have, that we basically, the data analysts bring their own biases that we're all aware of that we have in our society into their work. So not only is the data inputs can be biased, um, the, the people working on this and the models that they create have biases. And then also how uh, the models or the you know the applications that are being deployed can have then um, biased output. So th just that sort of on a on a basic level. But we have just very sort of concrete examples. We've seen, for example, um, there's been stories by ProPublica Pro on this. For example, using race and gender and age in um, targeting for employment and housing. Right. Right. So that. Um, those um, data elements are being used to target and then sort of exclude people from ads, from opportunities and how I think about this. And similar, we've seen um, work around differential pricing that even though maybe there are, you know, in the insurance space, in the car insurance, so some minority neighborhoods pay higher car insurance premiums than white areas with the same kind of risk. Um, and so you know, these we've there are examples, and I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of this because there have to be very diligent sort of researchers to look into that and establish that from a public interest perspective that we actually don't see a lot of this going on, and you know, so that's 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 concerning. Hmm. Jason, when when you're working on a product or or, or figuring out um, data points to collect on consumer profile data, yep. Do you kind of in institute limits on what you collect, or have there are there ever conversations about that? You know, do we need this bit of demographic data, or will it end up being um, damaging, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, we 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 in general, most advertisers and agencies have a preconceived notion of what, and I think this is this is what we were just saying has, has a preconceived notion of the target that they want to hit. And that preconceived mo notion is sort of that, that the segments in advertising that advertisers are so ingrained in their heads that they want to hit a target market of, uh, you know, female from 34 to 50 with two kids because they've made actually large investments, I guess, but is their argument, but they want to hit that data segment um, sort of by hell or high water. And the counter argument there is why don't we pay, why don't we perform, why, why don't we base that on metrics and not assumptions? So those metrics would be 
what are those KPIs you're trying to do? Are you trying to drive people to your website to fill out forms? Are you trying to drive people to interact with that mobile ad because uh, that'll 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 improve your brand? And we don't really like we highly recommend never to make assumptions on a on a group of people or a target of people. But why don't you just feed that to machines to machines and see what performs better? And we'd much rather come back and say your assumptions were completely wrong. Let's let's strip any sort of targeting and let's make sure whoever's clicking or 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 or, or interacting with the brand, we've stripped those assumptions and we've seen X-fold sort of X-fold um, uh, performance improvements on um, on stripping those assumptions um, hmm. r- rather than moving towards assumptions to say, oh, let's only target this or let's build models based on these groups of people. That's, that's n- not even at the core of what I think advertising should be. Yeah, I was. A, it's interesting you say that. I was a stay-at-home dad for a couple years not too long ago. And... Um, you know, this was after I had worked in media and worked in some ad tech roles, and I kind of I knew how it worked, <laughs> and I was attuned to it. And I was I always was a little amused when I would get online and find myself being fed clearly pieces of creative and ads that were targeted for women, right? Were like gender targeted, and because my online activity was based on you know, caring for kids or shopping for kids or domestic things, whatever. Um, I knew that there was, you know, some person in a cubicle somewhere who said, we need women of this age who, you know, who have these behaviors. Right. And they sent gender-specific messages out to people based on the behaviors. And, And I was like, well, that's not... Like, that's just because someone made a bad decision about what to do with the data. Sort of jump in here a little bit on this, uh, on this sort of notion that the, that this data is, you know, so I guess predictive that it's really objective that we sort of remove the uh, the human factor out of it, um, and I think that is um, that can also be quite problematic, right? So predictive analytics uses past data to make predictions about future behavior, and so when you then also in addition to that group people into these buckets together and say people like that in this group or in this demographic or in this location behave in a certain way then you sort of, um, you know, really lock people into sort of past patterns. And that's, you know, again, these are not things that you can sort of very quickly jump out to you as an observer and you can quickly study, but these things happen over time so that, um, you know, the people will be locked into a certain um, historic pattern and then treated in the same way. So that's when we have in society you know, historic discrimination and and disadvantage that then results in certain behaviors. And then you observe that as a data scientist. And then you say, okay, well, therefore I conclude I need to target these people in a certain way. You, You run the risk that you just sort of create these sort of amplifying feedback loops that you always treat people in a certain way. And that's, you know, if you look at sort of in a really on a high level on that, that's what I think we need to watch out for. 
couldn't couldn't agree more. Yeah. Is there a solution for that? <laughs> as I as I listen to that and think about it, it reminds me of a lot of the kind of dilemmas that technology has presented us with and a lot of people uh the tendency i think us being who we are is to solve the problems that technology has created by with more technology (laughs) you know so nobody's nobody's really as much as we maybe have begun down this road nobody's really stopping using plastic bottles but we're recycling more and we're developing enzymes that might be able to break down plastic and and things like that um that was a little bit of a departure but (laughs) but, my first actually actually the environment i think for me the environmental sort of parallel is a good one because we as a society have decided there are certain um, harms certain externalities that are not being addressed by Mm -hmm. individual consumer behavior right so we say we need to regulate that there are certain costs to us all that are not acceptable, and so we need to put limits on that. And so you can think of that in the same way with data, that there are certain data uses that are going to have you know, really bad externalities, negative effects on all of us, and we have to think about how we do address that. Now, how to do that, that's definitely a challenge. Um, I've got some ideas on that, but um, at least we need to sort of at least agree, first of all, on that there's a problem that we need to solve together and that, that we all will benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And and not not to go get too too political, but I think there's two hot topics of of, of of the current now to take environmentalism and the use of large data to target groups. One being you know um, uh, removing yourself from the Paris Accord, and the other is the Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytics when when very powerful individuals decide not to. Uh, abide by the groupthink. What what can we what can we do uh, on on all sides to move? I guess positive move in a positive direction. And I don't I don't have the answer to that. And that applies both to accumulating data. It comes to, in my world about you know targeting or at least getting the right message to the right person, and then also ensuring. Uh, ensuring that that right message isn't making assumptions just because it's a machine learned, but uh, and then we just go back to the same uh, bad state that we were in before because the machine found itself in a corner assuming things about a large group of user segments uh, and we've gotten nowhere, propelled nowhere, uh, but only have gone backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I... <sighs> I guess more about that last point. Um, how deep into that corner are we? As you mentioned, Jason, like the Facebook data is of particular interest to a lot of people right now. People are downloading their data from Facebook and seeing what it's collecting and uh, being pretty amazed or in some cases appalled. Um, it seems to be the case that the Pandora's box of Facebook has been opened and nobody's going to close it up. I don't really know if everybody left Facebook today, I think that people would find a replacement for Facebook because the behaviors that we undertake on Facebook are pretty ingrained, right? Um, so, let, so let me, let me talk a little bit, cause I think about this a lot where, uh-huh. Uh, you know, I've I've worked for 
startups and I've worked for large organizations and even even though there should be sort of silos uh, between data sources um, about the time um, they're saying Cambridge Analytics started um, was about the same time that Facebook started encourage people to build their own apps and what the agreement was between Facebook and um, um, companies was build these apps on our platform and then you can have all the data. So that was sort of, uh, that was sort of what got Facebook, uh, up to a level in which they turned their backs on the app developers and the advertising communities and said, thanks for all the billions of users. You're no longer going to have that data anymore. <laughs> And right. now they're now they're a big behemoth in which are untouchables and an advertiser. I really can't go toe to toe because one, I don't have Facebook's data and I'm not really asking for it, but they have different segments or different targeting parameters that I could ever dream about. But Facebook isn't the only one. If you think of if you think about your phone if, and if you think about the companies behind your phone and you think and you, and you think about every piece of data that they're following around and accumulating and we're only trusting those companies are doing right by your data. It does make me scratch my head and say, how come I'm looking on this map and you're telling me how busy this place is hmm. and where are you getting that data? And I scratch my head saying there's only a few ways and I'm sure it's a, it's, it's a first P data. And, and, and so I know how busy your business is at what particular times, and then I can increase that business if we if we share it. It's just, uh, I don't think, to your question, are we in the corner yet, sort of uh, feeding ourselves? Because I don't think there's enough people, I don't think there's enough companies with enough of that, that sort of data, but I think that the big ones all do, and we have to question how is that used, or how can it be shared? And I personally, as a consumer, would love for that I would love for that information to develop a product or develop entertainment for me based on that, but I don't know if I wholeheartedly trust to only funnel that and give that to me with those assumptions that the algorithms are going to give me. That's right. when we get back to in the corner that my, my Netflix queue or my, you know, my TV queue is not giving me anything outside or my Amazon wish list, you know, it's not giving me anything outside of my own purview. And again, we're kind of at that precipice. You know, yes, less data collection, less tracking, uh, less predictive analytics, less risk assessment. That's that's a big piece we haven't talked about. This data is also used in many ways to evaluate people in terms of their risk to an organization or, you know, to creditworthiness and so forth. Um, and so that means, as I said early on, that means somewhat of a less efficient way to go about things. And that might be ultimately the trade-off, right? That we are, that we have to imagine that uh, things might be a little less efficient and, but therefore maybe we have other uh, benefits from that. And so, um, and, and really thinking about um, what are the uses that are particularly harmful? And we have 
to really start to look into that and think about that. What are the patterns that that we are not uh, that that have over time caused these negative effects? You know, this question of efficiency is a big one because the holy grail of targeted marketing is, you know, the right message, the right person at the right time, and that seems to be the promise of data-driven marketing. And the general position of the marketing world is that that's a good thing, right? Both sides benefit. Um, so how would you recommend marketers work toward that goal while also having a more human-centric approach rather than efficiency as the end-all be-all? I think it's important to think about who's efficiency we're talking about. Hmm. And um, obviously, marketing companies, they think about um their particular efficiency, but I think when we have this conversation, we need to again broaden our view and say who, efficient to whom, and and is it maybe for society more efficient if we think about these data practices differently? Maybe we are actually going to have less uh, costs to to us all if we um, do a little less um, targeting. But um, I think, but just practically, I mean, yes, there are concepts like impact assessments, right, where you really sort of have some kind of rigorous methodology to think through if your particular application um, is is having other impacts that you haven't thought about, and that might trigger um, sort of thinking through, you know, things that you hadn't considered when you just want to target your, you know, household of, you know, certain income. But you know, what are the other impacts that you have um, not considered? And I think that some people, again, sort of academics are thinking about. How do you sort of develop methodology that might tr trigger that some kind of, you know, as I said, like an impact assessment? Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, Eric, you, when you said that, this just sort of reminds me of before there was big data and, and data segments needed to be aggreg aggregated. You know, there'd be a email in my inbox and says, you know, for $10, you know, Amazon card, take this 15 minute survey. And I had always thought, you know, oh, great. So maybe maybe if I fill out this survey, you know, they'll tie my email address to a more more one to one marketing, like exactly what you're saying. Like maybe maybe my ad experience will improve over time and spend next 15 minutes putting in all my sort of interests and hobbies and uh, slowly sort of realized even when it was. I, I opted in. I knew what I got. I got my $10 gift certificate or what have you or whatever they were given or your chance to win. Um, um, your chance to, to, to be uh, added to a drawing or what have you. But every, all my intent never was really the, the ability to win. It was the, the how to get to that one-to-one -one marketing. And you're and you're right. I think most people would love that. And I don't know. I don't know if we'll even get there with AI. I don't know if we'll get there with sort of uh, machine learning. Um, I don't know if we need to change that promise or even or, or what is that promise going like? Where do you sort of opt in? And Facebook was or Facebook was one of the first to say, give us all your data and we'll give you the right stuff. And I do notice that their targeted marketing is a lot more one-to-one, uh, -one, I guess. But I don't know if it's still uh, if it's still selling that promise, even when you go down to that large data set, and whether or not it's the right direction to go. 
And if we opt out, where do we go? Uh, if we opt out completely, where are we in the media landscape? Well, yeah, the the interesting, the really interesting point, uh, or at least one takeaway that I had from what you just said, is I'm reminded that Facebook has the most targeting criteria, I guess, available to it of any platform that I can think of. Um, and yet, from a from an ROI standpoint and from a marketing standpoint, the benchmarks are not that high. And I think there's an interesting thing going on there, which is that um, users are turning out to be fairly protective of what they want their user experience to be. People don't go onto Facebook to get sold to or to buy things. People right. are sort of self-selecting their channels for that. People go, obviously, to Amazon and uh, more and more so than you know Google um, these days. And um, of course, you know AdWords and and Google search metrics are still substantially higher than Facebook or even Instagram. Um, so that's may, might be kind of an interesting takeaway from the marketing side of, about the true value of all these various you know demographic and consumer data points that we obsess about collecting yeah and i and i have to say though uh just from my own consumer casual observation of my instagram feed every the the frequency of ads uh, most recently has bumped up and so every third you know, every third uh, image is now an ad. And I still have to say, uh, it's it's not, <laughs> with everything that they've got, it's not as targeted as, as you would think. It almost goes back to the, it almost goes back to just the user segments we talked about earlier. Like, we know this guy is this, you know, know this is a male in this age range, and maybe he wants a back, uh, backyard stove, which I keep getting, this, this backyard <laughs> stove. And I'm like, on the 17th floor of an apartment in Manhattan. And if I would bust <laughs> that out on the roof, I'd be immediately arrested. So, um, I don't know, you know, without, uh, you know, them knowing my, my address, which they do and my apartment n- number, which they do. Um, it's, we're still not at that Holy grail hmm. or is that the Holy grail we're running towards? Is there a better Holy grail? Can we flip the whole industry on its head and not, and, and propose a, a non-trackable, non-traceable, uh, but uh, but get to a one-to-one, um, you know, media for something. And what is that something else? And maybe that's share that par- paradigm should shift as well. So a lot of what has has happened so far. How much of that is really appreciably different from the kind of split-second judgments we make? in in-person interactions on a daily basis, you know, the, sure. the Malcolm Gladwell blink kind of thing. And, sure. um, you know, I was talking about, I was talking to my two, actually the, the two guests on this episode were Jonathan cop and Carrie Murphy, <laughs> no relation to Katerina cop that I know of. However, <laughs> Carrie and Jason and I all worked together back in Seattle. Um, That's right. But aside from that, um, you know, I was just thinking about it, and I was thinking um, it seems pretty nefarious because it's happening unbeknownst to us and probably happening, well, definitely happening on a much 
larger scale than an in-person scale. Um, but specifically in terms of, you know, buying segments through Cambridge Analytica and that kind of thing, um, I'm not sure how different that is from a candidate walking into a certain part of town and saying, you know, from the looks of you, you'll be interested in my healthcare message or you'll be interested in my uh, terrorism message or whatever, and kind of tailoring what they say to the people they're speaking to. I mean, this is without getting into the um, fake news and all of the really bad stuff, but just specifically um, uh, tailoring their message based on the data that they're receiving. Um, I, I don't know. How does it differ, I guess? Maybe it only differs in scale. As a Facebook user, you where you might not even realize that you know, all this data about you is used for that purpose to give you, you know, quote unquote, manipulate you to, to, to that. Um, I think if you walk into a, uh, I don't know, a political event, you know, there's no, no data about you, mostly known. There's maybe some data about, you know, some things about your, uh, some information about your demographics and stuff, but um, it's quite different, and and I think that's what shocks people that they that a lot of information is used about them to tailor a message to them, and they didn't even know that, right? And yeah, and then I think the issue of transparency that we don't we we as a sort of political as a, as a civic society we should know what these political messages are, what promises are being made, what lies are being said, right? So yeah. that we can. Um, you know, interact with that and just actually put a balance and counterbalance to that if these things are being said. And so, maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's the volume and speed that 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 we can say because because when you just mentioned a sort of you know political, I know that some like super and I'm making an assumption, but I think it's a safe assumption to say that if I am interested in primary elections. Uh, and I walk into a town hall based on that primary election, that's going to be a small group compared to what we do know that presidential elections bring more votes. Um, but what we're really talking about is within, within moments being able to reach a large quantity of people that we've um, sort of identified versus versus people that we sort of know, hey, I'm going to give you a flyer for my opinion at this event. And that volume is a one-to-one. -one. And there, there seems to be more of a, um, less frightening to that. Like how many pamphlets do you get at a, you know, walking out of, walking out of a town hall meeting or what have you versus here's just a smattering at a hot button topic that will enrage and enlighten and when I say in light, I do mean um, from a marketer's perspective, usage, which is in rage, is, in, is sort of enlightening that, enlightening and, and, and increasing that usage. I think there is a difference. I really do think there's a difference between a face-to-face -face quick snap judgment versus make, um, trying to get people to engage more at a mass level. Hmm. I think we all agree. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>